This right. is an eight iron and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome the 2017 Stacia European Order of Merit winner, Clark Dennis, to the Sub-70 podcast. Uh, Clark, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Good to be with you, Jason. Well, the uh, hot topic of the day, I figured you played professional golf for a long time, so uh, I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on this. The USGA has the distance report that came out. I don't think there's anything shocking in this, that uh, especially at the highest level, the golf ball is going further. Um, thoughts? You know, you, you, you've played kind of, you know, through the old equipment into the new era of equipment. What's your sort of thoughts on where this equipment debate needs to be? And, and is there biification? Like, where does this need to go, in your opinion, from, from seeing amateurs that you're playing with out there on pro-ams then also golf at the highest level? Well, it's interesting because, you know, my career has kind of bridged the two eras. So I played two U.S. Opens using a wood driver with a steel shaft and a lot of ball. So I've seen it, and then I played them using, you know, 45-inch drivers with 460cc heads and, you know, the, the new ball. So, you know, what's interesting to me is whenever I was younger, the longer hitters were longer, but they were about 20 yards longer, maybe 30 at the most, you know, the very longest guys, and they weren't necessarily the best players. Nowadays, it's very difficult to get to the top level without being an incredibly long hitter of the ball so i think that has definitely changed a lot i think the equipment has changed it i think it's mostly the new ball although i think drivers have made some difference but i believe that you know if you roll back the ball a little bit made it spin more made it go offline like it did when when we learned how to play golf that uh, it would definitely bring a little skill back into the game and it would change the dynamics of what kind of player is going to play well what do you think the amateurs should be? Should there should the guy like uh, me, two or three handicap, who's still sixty four hundred, sixty five hundred yard golf course is fine. Driver goes two fifty, two sixty. Do you think I should then have a ball that kind of is stopping at this point, and then maybe roll it back from the top amateurs, or how do you then deal with the the amateur problem? Or if you look at that that report, uh, we haven't hit the ball as much, nearly as much of the gain as a, as a top level amateur or professional golfer. Right. And I, you know, the distance comes when you get to a certain swing speed. So it definitely has not really helped your average 85 to 95 mile an hour swing speed. And so I don't know if rolling back the ball for us is really going to affect amateurs, you know, the lower amateurs that much because they really haven't gotten much gain out of it. I, you know, the main thing is you want people to enjoy the sport. So you don't want to take things away. They're going to, they're going to create enjoyment for your average amateur, even your, you know, one, two, three handicapper you. So, you know, there should probably be a discussion about a ball for professionals and maybe top, top levels, college type, you know, U.S. amateur type amateurs, something that has a, you know, a maximum that you can, that you can go with. So I think, you know, it's a difficult question, though. It really is hard to determine where that is. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's my gut is at some point they're just going to have two different balls and put a line in the sand for kind of where it is. And then because I think it's such a small population that this is affecting, i.e., you guys on tour, the top, top, top amateur players. Because as you well know, there's a huge difference between a guy who's a plus two or plus three, even a one or two handicap. It's yeah. It's a it's a world of difference as you get down to that level. I just hope the USGA doesn't, you know, golf is hard enough for most amateur players. I hope they don't roll the stuff back where my 250-yard drive now goes 230 yards, you know, yada, yada, right. yada. And, and, it gets, and people say, oh, forget it, golf's hard enough. And then I was making some progress with the ball not spinning as much, and now I'm not even going to play. Or it's just too no. hard. So I hope they can find the balance. We want people to uh enjoy the game still so you need to find a balance the other thing that that has changed from like i said my first us open was 1988 used a wood driver there i played in 1994 95 
you know, mid nineties where I used a Callaway, but what has really changed in the USGA probably hasn't really addressed this is the US opens back in the day. If you missed the fairway, you weren't getting it out and you were chipping out and the fairways are much wider on the setups now, uh, in the majors, the rough is not as penal, uh, typically as it was back then. So, I mean, there's, there's also that that could be done. And, and even the regular tour events, when I started, my rookie year was 1990. Uh, the rough was much more penalizing than it is now. So, you know, nowadays, these guys, they hit it so far, they don't really care if it goes in the rough or in the fairway. You know, when I, when I was started playing, you had to hit it in the fairway to really be a competitive player. Do you miss the days of where shot makers could really do well on tour of that, for lack of a better word, it seemed like it was a little bit more art than just brute strength. Did you kind of miss seeing guys hit quote unquote golf shots a little bit? Uh, Kind of looking back, did you enjoy watching when you were watching a fellow competitor at the highest level? Was it kind of cool what they could do with that old blot of ball or a professional 90 compared to what kind of happens now or how the game is played now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I look back at some of the guys I played with, like a Corey Pavin, who was, you know, obviously didn't hit the ball very far, but was an absolute master at working the ball left and right, right to left, you know, chipping, putting. I mean, that, that's an amazing way to play golf. And nowadays, just don't see that too much. And it's not it's not an indictment on the younger players because the equipment is set up to hit it high, straight and far. And so that's the way you have to play now. Uh, so, you know, all credit to them. They've learned to play the game that way and they've done an incredible job doing it. And every, every sport has advanced. I mean, you know, basketball players nowadays are taller, faster, stronger than they were. Uh, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying that the younger players aren't every bit as good. It's just different. They're, you know, the, the diff, it's a different game now than it was back then. Totally agree. It's uh, it'll be an interesting debate to see what happens going forward. Um, but uh, yeah, it's out there, and uh, you know, it'll probably take a while. But the debate will be interesting. Well, uh, gonna ask you too. Uh, you've had a really good run over in Europe on the uh, Stay Shore Tour, which is their version of the Champions Tour over in Europe for the European Tour. Uh, what has changed, if anything, in your game where you've been? so successful in winning every year that you're over there. Uh, is there anything that you worked on that came about for you to have this level of success? Well, you know, it's pretty interesting, Jason. I, 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 when I was about to turn 50, I knew that, you know, I would like to give it one more chance. Obviously, I'd like to be playing the Champions Tour more. I do play some on the Champions Tour, but I'm not exempt. So I try to get myself in good shape. And, you know, I went to the Q School on the Champions Tour when I was 49, didn't make it, went to Europe hit the Q school and didn't make it. And, um, at that time I was really at a crossroads with, you know, what am I going to do? Because here I am 50 years old. Do I get a job? Do I start over a a new career that, you know, at 50 years old, it was tough. So I just kind of made a decision when I was 50 after I missed in Europe, because I did miss in Europe the first time I attempted it in the Q school. There's only five spots. so Not too hard to miss. Um, and it was really more, it wasn't, I didn't change my swing. I didn't change anything, but I decided that no matter what, I was going to enjoy it. I was going to have a grateful attitude about being able to play golf because I knew that I didn't have long left, whether it was a year, five years, 10 years to play professional golf. And I just made a commitment that year to uh, having a grateful attitude about everything that I did. And I went out and I played a few champion servants that year. I did okay, not great. I went to the Champions Tour Q School and didn't make it, but then I went to Europe and didn't make the Q School. And uh, that was, you know, there's a lot of stories about almost being done, but I feel like, you know, I've got a pretty good one. I was playing the last nine at Q School. It's in Portugal. And uh, obviously I was right there, kind of right around the number. And I made a, a birdie and a bogey and, then there's number 14 is a par three down the hill. Big, it's a beautiful place, Portugal, where they play this Q school. Big field to the right. And it's a downhill, tough par three, about a five iron. And I remember I blocked this five iron right, and it wasn't a good shot. And there's a cart path right at the green. And it hit one bounce on the cart path. Two, and it's going out of bounds. I mean, it was definitely going out of bounds. It hits the top of a tree. It kicks back left, just right of the green, and I got it up and down. 
And if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't have, I'd, I'd be working in some job somewhere if that one bounce hadn't happened. And so I think looking back on that, when I started to play that year, I was just so happy to be there. I was so grateful to be playing professional golf that it just allowed me to play free and, and to play well. And I just, I had a great year that year and won the order of merit, won a couple of times, had a lot of uh, chances to win other than that. And it just propelled me to, you know, what's happened the last few years. Talking about the Champions Tour over here, uh, you hear the debate kind of on that side. I've had like John Rieger on talking about like, and Neil Lancaster, like they think it should be opened up a little bit more to get the players who are playing the best at that time out on that tour a little bit more. Then the other debate is, you know, people want to see the names that they've seen on the leaderboard for 25 years, and they've earned their right to kind of come play the Champions Tour for as long as they want. What's your sort of thoughts on, would there be a middle ground or or a better way to maybe have uh, some of the guys who aren't going to be exempt, because that's like the hardest tour in the world to get out on, there's no doubt about it, like it is, it is tough, and there's a lot of great players every year at the Q School. Is is there a way that you think that product could be a little bit better from playing in some of the events than trying to go through Q school? Like you kind of, you've been on both sides of it a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, it's an interesting question because I understand both sides of it. Because there are people that come out, it, you know, they just want to see, you know, the guys that that, that they've seen play for a long time. Uh, but from my perspective, I've played professional golf my entire life, and I've always felt like the best players should play. So, you know, it's hard to tell a guy who's shooting high 70s, you know, hey, you can't play anymore even though you won four majors, even though you're a real recognizable name. Uh, But, you know, I think there should be a little more merit than there is right now. I mean, you look at guys like Ken Tanagawa and Scott Perrell, and these are guys that either, neither one of them played the PGA Tour. Uh, but they are, I play with both of them and they are phenomenal players. So what does the public want to see? What do they want to see? Do they want to see Scott Perell hitting at 300 yards, which he does, you know, shooting 65, 66, 67, or do they want to see, I'm not going to pick a name because I don't want to pick on anybody, but they want to see somebody out there that they've known for a little while that they know their name, but he's shooting 78. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the public wants to see somebody play good golf. And if there's a way to get, you know, I mean, a lot of the tournaments, they'll have Trevino and Nicholas and, you know, Andy North, and they, they do these exhibitions at, for nine holes on Saturday. And they're super well attended. Everybody knows they're not there to see great golf. They play a scramble. And it's a great way to see some of the big, big names still out there on the golf course. So I, I think a, something like that would be would be really good. Or uh, what about like even just having more spots open for Monday qualifying? Because what is it? Is it two or it's two four. or three? It's re- it's four. It's what about four. putting that to like ten or twelve every week? Right. So then you would have, you know, you don't have to go sixty three every time to get out there. And then I would have to think of ten or twelve players. That would really reward some good solid play from that qualifier during the week. You think they'd be able to yeah. squeeze that in, right? Uh, ten more guys into the tournament. I think so. I mean. What you know, they have five spots at the Q school, and the Q school is you know obviously you're, you're going to play really good for four days to get your card, and it's great, uh, but it's not like I don't think it should depend on your entire year for five spots. It's very difficult. So why not take those five spots, put them on Monday? The guys that aren't exempt to the Mondays have a qualifying for them to be able to qualify, and then you've got nine spots on Monday. Uh, you know, when Marco Dawson came out, he wasn't exempt, uh, and that, it was that way. They had, I think they had about seven spots on Monday, seven or eight on Monday. And he said, he said, I wouldn't have gotten out. He ta- I, we talked talk to him about this. He said, I wouldn't be out here on the Champions Tour if there was four spots because so many of them, I finished fifth or sixth or seventh, and I got in the tournament. So, yeah, I think that there's definitely a way to do that. But uh, let me tell you, the, the guys who are exempt – but their categories on the Champions Tour are extremely protective of those spots. They don't sure. want change. They want it the way it is now because they want to keep their spot. You know, and, and I understand that. But I think there is room for changes for sure. Yeah, I think you don't have to flip the whole system. I just don't – I think 
10 or 12 spots each week for guys who are really playing great would, I think it'd make the product even better, right? Because then you could have, you know, a guy who's uh, playing great up against a Bernhard Langer or a Scott McCarron, right? It's an interesting story. If, yeah, uh, no, for sure. Like the Doug Barron story was awesome last year. It's like it's incredible. Doug Doug's a friend Freddy. of mine, and he's, he's a great player. And, you know, what a great story that was. An incredible story. And to take... And to take out Freddie at the end of it, right? Like, who? I yeah. mean, that's great TV. It's Doug Barron against Freddie Couples, and you know he came through with it. So I love those stories as a golf fan. I would, I would like to see a little bit more of that, or those guys to have a little bit more opportunity to, to yeah. kind of show their skill set and get out there. Me too. Well, you look at look at last week in Morocco. They had sixty six players only in that field. Right. So, I you know there's twelve more spots or 12 fewer spots than would be in a normal field. I don't understand why, why they couldn't have just a regular size field. And, you know, they could have had more of us guys from Europe play. There was only five of us there and they could have had at least 10. They could have added more guys from the champions. You know, and there's a lot of things that are frustrating as somebody who's not exempt on the champions tour. But, you know, the answer to that always is if you play good, they can't keep you out. Right. But it's hard. Like you said, it is, it is hard. You know, it's really you can play really good and just still not have the opportunities. Well, we'll see. I, I hope eventually they open some more spots up. I think, I think it would be good for that tour to to have both sides of it: the recognizable names and some guys playing really great and bring it all together. And like I said, the the Doug Barron story, and I had had him on the podcast the the I believe the day after he won. Like, what a great story! Like, how is that yeah, not the coolest thing of the year out there? So, it's yeah, hopefully, story. hopefully they'll. Uh, They'll uh, change it up a little bit. I like to see a little bit more of competitive from my side and the names combined. I think it wouldn't be the, the worst thing for that tour. And speaking of getting ready for 50, what did you do in your late 40s? Because the guys who stay competitive in their late 40s seem to do better on any of the major tours on the 50 and over circuit versus, you know, I'm in the broadcast booth for 10 years and now I got to go try to be competitive again. What did you do to keep? you know, your game at a pretty high caliber. So when you had the opportunity, you were ready to go play and go out there and win. Well, what I did is, you know, I, I took a couple of jobs that were, I was still able to practice. I was still able to play some tournaments. Uh, I really paid attention to my fitness when I was 49. I went to see uh, Amp Golf Fitness over in Dallas, who uh, were Jordan Spieth's trainers. And I really got a plan to be fit and ready when I, when I got to be 50 and I didn't play a lot of competition. So I think that's why my first year was a little, I mean, I, when I was 50, it was not quite as good as it has been after that. I, Cause it took me that long to kind of get back to used to competing again. But I, you know, I think the big thing for somebody turning 50 is to make sure that you're fit, that you are physically able to handle the rigors of travel, the, you know, all the things that, you know, when you're 25 or 30 or 35 that you really don't think about. And so I think that was a big thing for me to be uh, in really good shape whenever I turned 50. Hey, everyone. It's Jason at the Sub 70 Podcast. Uh, we would like to announce that we have the 699 in a combo set series now. We've expanded the offering of the Utility Club all the way up to a number six. You can combine that with the 699 iron and make sort of the perfect combo set. A little bit more help in the longer approaches or mid approaches with the 699U and then combine that with our award-winning tour proven 699 iron to kind of make the perfect combo set where you want it at. So any questions on the hollow body technology or why the iron's working so well along with any questions on shafts, fittings, grips, anything like that, feel free to let us know. We're always glad to help. Uh, you can find all the information at golfsub70.com, or like I said, feel free to reach out to us on all of our platforms, and we are always here to uh, help make sure that golf club is absolutely perfect for you. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's talk about your first victory over on the Stay Shore Tour. Uh, you win the Italian Open in a playoff over Peter Fowler. Kind of looking back on that and kind of jumpstarting your career over in Europe and the run you've been on, what, what sort of comes to your mind or... You know, what was that moment like to kind of, you know, get over the finish line and get it done? Well, you know, the week before at Woburn, which is probably our biggest, I think it's the biggest purse, one of the better events we have uh, on that tour, although we, we don't have it anymore. But I had a seven-shot lead with, like, not that many holes to play, like 12 holes to play. 
and I lost and I'm really made a mess of it. I mean, it was terrible. Um, and so I think the younger me would have been so devastated by that, that I would have just cratered for the rest of the year. But like we talked about before, I was just so happy to be playing that. I, yeah, I was mad. I mean, I, I think anybody would be, but I just went into the next week thinking, yeah, I know I lost, but man, I played great for most of that tournament. And I'm just want to carry that over. And, you know, just fortunately, the next week I played just as good. You know, uh, I birdied, I think, 17 uh, to uh, Ty Peter. And we went to playoff and it was a mess. It was raining and uh, we uh, we had to play 18 as a par three, which is normally a long par four. And I had a great shot in there and, and made the putt. It was a great feeling. It was a big monkey off my back because I hadn't won a tournament in a long time. So, you know, people don't realize how difficult it is to go from not playing to, oh, wait a minute, I need to win. <laughs> I'm about to win a tournament. Uh, and uh, to get over that line really has helped me to uh, win again and again, uh, just that one victory. Uh, and, you know, it was a great catalyst towards what winning the Order of Merit that year and also the other victories I've had in Europe. I was going to ask you um about the victory you had in 2019 at the Winston Golf Tournament, um, beating Ola Thabo coming down to the end. Is there a different pressure when you have a player of that uh, pedigree, Hall of Fame? I mean, he's accomplished everything, right? And is it is it even more satisfying to, to, to nip him by one stroke knowing that, uh, you know, the level of competition you beat that day and you kind of held him off and held your own? Is it Does it have a little bit of a different vibe to it? It, it definitely does. Um, you know, and also Langer was there playing in the last group with Ollie and, you know, to be, have those two guys and to be able to bring, you know, I shot 30 on the backside, I shot six under on the backside, came from six back with nine to play and one by one. It was, it was a great feeling to be able to win that tournament. Uh, but it was also extra special because of those two guys that were up at the top of the leaderboard that I sailed on past. Uh, you know, those guys are, Legends, you know, they're, they're major champions, they're masters champions, they're, you know, Langer's the best player maybe that's ever played senior golf. Uh, and Ollie is, is, he's a tremendous guy. I played with him earlier in the year in France and, you know, super, super nice, nice guy. And I felt kind of guilty because I don't think anybody there wanted me to win except for my wife and son who was caddying for me. Uh, I think everybody else either wanted Langer or Ollie. Because, you know, it would have been so great for our tour to have somebody like Ollie win a tournament. And he's never won as a senior, but, you know, it, it was probably the, one of the highlights of my career to be able to win that tournament with those two guys, that, you know, up at the top of the leaderboard. Talking about uh, the majors on the Champions Tour, um, I know you've played in, I think, most all of them. Uh, is the feeling on the Champions Tour for a major, is it very similar to a PGA Tour major? Or what kind of difference is there when you're, you know, kind of on the biggest stages of both the tours? Is there more similarities or is it still a little more relaxed than it was when you were playing the I, PGA Tour? I think it's definitely more relaxed than the PGA Tour. But I would say the U.S. Senior Open has, the USGA does a great job with their with their championships and it definitely has more of a major feel. The PGA is kind of the same way. Uh, but the U S you know, the U S senior open always big crowds, uh, which we don't always get on the champions tour on the station tour. So it definitely has that feel of, yeah, this is a big tournament. Um, some of the other majors, you know, I mean, there's five majors on the champions tour. So, um, the British Senior Open is obviously, you know, playing. It, we got we got to play at St Andrews. We play phenomenal courses. It's a great, great event that does definitely feel like a major. Um, you know, the Players Championship I played in. It's a great tournament. I wouldn't say it felt as much like a major. Uh, I haven't played in the region's tradition in Alabama, but you know, when you've got when you play the same course every year and. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say. To me, there's three majors in, in on the Champions Tour in, in senior golf, and that's the British Senior Open, the Senior PGA, and the U.S. Senior Open. Is you still get just massively pumped up for those tournaments? Is it still just? It's got to be. It's got to be so much fun still in your fifties to be competing for championships of that level. It still has to be. 
an adrenaline rush to kind of get out there on the first tee and be announced in the U.S. Senior Open or something to that extent, or the Senior British, right? Like, yeah, that's, no, that's why you put the work in. There's no doubt that, that you know, that you're definitely more amped for those tournaments. And, the, you know, the preparation uh, is a little different coming up to those tournaments than it is for just a regular event. Uh, you know, we, like I say, in, in, in the British Senior Open, the courses we've played, you know, Royal Porthcall in Wales was phenomenal. Uh, Litham in St. Anne's last year was one of the best courses I ever played. To get to pay, play the old course in a championship uh, is something I wasn't sure I'd ever get to do. And, you know, it's kind of a a bucket list thing that, uh, you know, was amazing, an amazing experience. So, yeah, they're, they're different. They're, they definitely are different. You know, we're playing one of the oldest golf courses in the United States this year in, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Um, and, you know, I think it's the fifth oldest course in the country, Newport Country Club. So, you know, I mean, those they're, it, they are special events. I was going to ask you about uh, your rookie year uh, on the PGA Tour, and I always – find the conversation interesting of the first time you're out there, you know, uh, against the best in the world, looking back, what's sort of your memories of that rookie year? And is there some great stories from that experience or is there ever that moment where you're like, Oh my gosh, that's Seve Ballesteros hitting balls next to me or, you know, Tom kite or just absolute legends of the game. Is it hard not to get wrapped up into some of that a little bit as you're watching some of these guys that you watched growing up playing and now you're competing against them? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I started off, you know, not great uh, early in my first couple of events, and I wasn't. Then I finished third in the Lion Open. I played with Paul Hazinger the last day, and, and that course sort of opened my eyes. And then we get over to Doral, you know, a tournament I normally wouldn't have been in because it was $1.3 million, the biggest tournament on tour at the time. <laughs> I know uh, these young guys would find that hard to believe, but it was the, the absolute pinnacle as far as purse. And um, come along the last day, and I'm, I'm looking at the, the pairings, and I, I'm like, I had to take a triple take because I was like, Jack Nicholas, I'm playing with Jack Nicholas, <laughs> you know, here I am, 24 years old, and uh, I'm getting paired with Jack Nicholas in the last round of, uh, of Durrell, and it was a, you know, I know there were a lot of caddies that uh, had a lot of bets on what I was going to shoot because I they told me about it later. And it, that you know that experience right there to be able to play with Jack Nicklaus in a golf tournament in a PGA Tour event, uh, you know that solidified to me. Okay, yeah, I'm on the PGA Tour. This is this is real. Um, and, and I played great. I shot 68. Jack was an absolute gentleman. I mean, probably one of the nicest men I've ever played with. He was deferential. He stopped the crowd when they were running. He you know he is uh, everything that you would want. In, in a playing partner. I mean, he, he was in pro. Was it hard not to get caught up in watching him play? I mean, he had oh, to play your game and you're a professional. Was it hard to not watch, you know, the potential? I, I was a fan the whole day. Seven. I mean, I was, I was, right. I was watching him the whole day. I mean, I, you know, I was a total fan because he was one of the reasons why I wanted to play golf. Um, you know, he was, he was everything. And, you know, at that time, Tiger Woods hadn't come around and, you know, Jack was 51 at the time. And I thought, oh man, he's not, he's old. You know, <laughs> here I am almost 54, but you know, I thought 51, you know, that's, you know, I can't believe he's that old. Uh, but, uh, he's still a great player at the time. Obviously he had won the Masters not that long before. Uh, and yeah, it was, I was a total fan that whole day. I think that's why I played well because I was just, I was on cloud nine. What a cool experience, right? I don't know if it gets any better than that of a competitive round. With Mr. Nicholas, that's uh, no. I played with Jack. I played play with Biasteros at the Players Championship one year, and you know he How was, was a, he was another interesting guy. Um, it was great. You know, uh, I played with him two days, and obviously he was at the end of his career uh, and not playing well. It was when he was really struggling with his long game, yeah. and uh, so he we played two days, and he missed the cut badly, and I think I barely missed the cut. Uh, uh, I had played okay, but. I was struggling a bit with my short game and, uh, you know, we got done and I was like, oh, Seve, you know, it was a great honor to play with you. I really appreciate the two days. And he looks at me and he says, oh, Clark, said, oh, you're chipping in not too good. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like devastated. I was like, Seve by was the greatest short game player in the world. Just told me I stink at chipping. Uh, but to, to his credit, I mean, he, kind of took me aside and said, no, you need to do this different things. You need to use different clubs, not the same club. I mean, he kind of gave me about a 10 minute little lesson. So, you know, there's uh, not a lot of people that can say they 
had Seve show him how to chip. So that was a cool experience as well. I've had great experiences game? in my life. Oh, his short game was, yeah. yeah it, it, it never Indescribable, him, right? actually. I mean, uh, I never will forget one shot he hit on the 15th at the Players' Championship. Like I say, he was hitting it all over the place. He couldn't drive the ball anymore, but he hit it way over the green. He hit it in the pine straw, and, you know, the greens of the Players' Championship, are they're always like pavement. And Penn was way back in the back, probably three or four paces off the back edge and rough behind it. And he's 20 yards over the green on pine straw. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't have even been able to hit the green probably. And, and he hits this, he just kind of zips this little, whatever he, you know, 50, 60 degree wedge. It lands one foot on the green, takes one hop and it's a foot from the hole. I mean, it was like, I mean, my jaw hit the ground. It was unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen anybody be able to do anything like that before then or since then. It, it was amazing. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There was any other great uh, stories of playing with the, the absolute legends of the game that you got to experience from that time period? Well, you know, I've played with a lot of them, and every you know every single one of them, from Ray Floyd to uh, Nicholas to Ballesteros, you know, Faldo. I mean, you know, I've, I've been so fortunate in my life to be able to play with those guys and see them in the arena that, uh, you know, I, I never won on tour. I regret that, but, I you know, I don't regret my career at all. I've had a great time. This uh, second act where I've been able to travel in Europe a lot and I've got to play with guys like Barry Lane and Constantino Roca and guys that I didn't play much with on my in my early career. You know, it's been amazing. It really has. And Olaf Albo, I, play, I never played with Olaf Albo on tour. I've gotten to play with him now in Europe. So, it's uh, it's really been a I, I can't complain about how my career is going. Was Mister Floyd quite intimidating to a young pro out there, or was he? Uh, he was. was cool he player? was. He was very intimidating. I played with him at Doral as well, too. Uh, uh, and actually, it was the he was Steve Williams was caddying for him, and it was the week before Steve went to work for Tiger. Um, so I didn't know that at the time, but Ty, he, they announced the next week that Steve was going to work for Tyler. So yeah, he was, he was a very intimidating guy. I mean, he, uh, very nice, very nice man, but uh, he definitely did not varnish his opinions for sure. That's yeah. That's a good combination of <laughs> talking about intimidating, right? Ray Floyd and Steve Williams staring at somebody in the gallery. I don't know if I'd <laughs> yeah. want those, you know, four know. eyes on me. Um, Really interesting stuff. Uh, you got to play in the Masters. So what was that experience like? Did it live up to everything you thought it would be? And, you know, what's your memories of, of that experience as well to do something? You know, it's incredible. You got to play in the Masters. Like, how cool is that? You know, it was a great experience to play in the Masters, but i got to blame Jay Haas for not making the cut because I played and obviously I struggled putting, uh, as everybody does the first time they play the Masters. But I, I managed to shoot 73, 73. I was faking the ball really well. And I felt like, okay, well, that always makes the cut that conditions weren't easy the second day. I missed about a 15 footer for birdie on the last hole. And I went back to the place I was staying and I'm watching TV and Jay Haas is 500. He birdies 15, 16, 17, and 18 to get the nine under, which cut out the two overs from the 10 shot rule. And then I want to say that, uh, top 40 in ties. And I think there was 40 guys exactly at one over. So I missed the cut, but. Having said all that, even though that was a, a disappointing ending to it, uh, playing in the Masters and being there was an amazing experience, and it's it's really like nothing else I've ever seen in golf. Architecturally, is the course that great? Is it beyond how perfect it is and stuff? Did you just love the challenge of playing it? Was it from that standpoint? Yeah, no, it's you know definitely in my top five courses I've ever played, and it was uh, you know the the thing that you don't really get on TV is how hilly it is and you know, how ups the ups and downs you just can't really tell on TV. Uh, the main thing is though, the course is just immaculate. Like I've never seen anything that good. Uh, it, it was really, really incredible as far as, I mean, it, you, you could eat off the fairways. They were, they were, they were amazing. Well, I got to ask you about the U.S. Open. Uh, 94, you finished sixth. You were close. Oakmont, great venue for, uh, you know, a U.S. Open. That just feels like a U.S. Open golf course. Uh, what, what was that experience like, you know, going for the national championship and kind of being right there in it? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was great. I was, you know, I was playing with Fred Couples the last day. Uh, and Freddie's, you know, cool as a cucumber always. And, 
Uh, he didn't play that well, but I, I shot a couple under on the front. I want to say I was either one back or tied for the league going into the last nine. And, you know, my agent, Bud Martin, who's, you know, I've been with him for since 1990. Great guy. He's from Pittsburgh. And so he was super excited. And, you know, he, he would kill me for telling telling the story, but I'm going to tell it because he, he denied it for years. And I think he finally admitted he, I'm walking from nine to 10 with Freddie. You know, it's not a, it's a pretty short walk over there. He's so excited. He's, and he comes running up to me. And he says, Clark, Clark, if you shoot two under this nine, you win the U.S. Open. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Not now, right? And my not wife, now. who's following me, is, my, my wife, who's following me, is saying all the right things. She's like, don't think about it. Yep. Just play golf. Probably not going to win. There's time here. Just be focused, be calm. You know, I mean, my wife is great. You know, we've been married 30 years this year, and she, she's not a golfer, but she understands psychology, you know, better than most golfers. And, you know, my agent, Bud, comes up and tells me that. And I immediately just, through my eyes, just, I mean, I, probably all the blood drained out of my face at that moment, and I doubled 10. Uh, and, uh, and I bogeyed 11. And I made a couple of birdies coming in after that, and I actually had a, I hit it close on 15, 16, 17, and 18. Uh, so I still had a chance at the end. But it was great to be in that. Well, that was walking up 18 in Oakmont with the grandstands around, playing with Fred Couples. Huge roar. I hit it about six feet on the last hole. Huge roar, big ovation. You know, I, I had chills. I mean, you know, it was uh, it was an incredible experience to be able to to do that and be there. How tough is that golf course set up for a U.S. Open? Is it one of the more, I mean, it's got to be up on the list of the more difficult ones you've ever played, I'd have to imagine. No, I never shot over par there, so it's not that hard. <laughs> or you were playing really, really, <laughs> my, really, my really round, good. My, my round, I shot, I shot 71, which now the par is 70 there, but at the time it was 71. I shot 71, 71, 70, 71. So uh, I'm pretty proud to say that I played a U.S. Open without shooting over par. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, that's, that's an accomplishment. But yeah, that's a, it's an incredible golf course. It is so difficult. Uh, you just cannot make a mistake there. And the greens are as difficult or more difficult than Augusta. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's probably my favorite open venue that I played, that I've played. Uh, I think it's just a really, really great test of golf all around. I was going to ask you too about, uh, spending time in Europe a little bit. And it's kind of a two part question, but what are some of your favorite cities or places that you visited in Europe? And then what's the biggest difference of living in Europe, not just there for a vacation, but you're actually living over there, playing that tour. Is there any kind of surprises or things that are a little bit different, you know, uh, of living over there than you, than you thought, or what's different than, you know, we have here in the States. So places you love. And then, you know, I never thought about that, but this is an interesting part about living over there and spending time. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I've re- you know, I didn't spend much time in Europe early in my career. I played a couple of Scottish Opens. I went over for the British Open a couple times. Uh, but I really had not spent hardly any time in Europe, so it was a really new experience for me uh, the first year. Amazing experience. It's been, I've got three sons and my wife, and they're all now they're all in college. But when they started... They were just getting ready, either in college or just getting ready to go. So we, the last three years, we've all gotten to spend the summers in Europe. My boys have gotten to see places and things that, uh, you know, I never, I, that I would never would have been able to show them if I hadn't been playing the tour over there. It's definitely different. The food is a little bit different. Um, you know, every country, you know, has different and, you know, the hotels are a little more difficult, uh, not quite as luxurious. Uh, as in the U.S. in a lot of cases. So I've had to adapt. I've had to learn how to do Airbnb, and I've been in houses and kind of – I'm fortunate I, uh, I represent a club over there when I play over there called Hanbury Manor, which is in Hertfordshire, north of London. And so I have a great place to go there to practice and play. We have a tournament there also on the tour. Uh, so I've been fortunate that way to have that association uh, and to be able to have that place to go to. But, you know, I mean, the places we go, I mean, uh, Switzerland, 
Badgergrass is an amazing place. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And then we play a tournament in Austria that is amazing. Uh, of course, not all our tournaments in Europe. Uh, we play in Mauritius, which is down in the Indian Ocean, which is, we stay at a hotel called the Prince Maurice, which is probably my favorite place I've ever been in the world. It's like, you know, a beach, ocean, it's just incredible. And we play in the Seychelles, uh, and we played in Madagascar this year. So, I mean, these are destinations that, I never pictured myself going to some of them. I, mean, I didn't even know Mauritius existed to be fair. At, you know, before I started playing this tour, it was just a little dot in the Indian ocean. Uh, and so to be able to see these places and experience the different cultures uh, has been a real eye opener. And it's really taught me and my boys and my wife a lot about the world. I have to ask, cause I love links golf when you're traveling, uh, in the Scotland, North England area. Have you had a chance to take a little sidebar and, and go play some of the great links golf courses in the world uh, since you're spending more time in Europe? Yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of that. Uh, my uh, my son went over and played the Brabazon course where they at the Belfry where they had uh, the Ryder Cup, and he enjoyed that. Uh, I played uh, uh, Mercar Links, which is right next to Royal Aberdeen, which a lot of people wouldn't know what Mercar Links is, but it one of the best links courses I've ever seen. And that, that's the thing about Scotland and Northern England. There's courses there that nobody's ever heard of that you get on them and you're like, wow, that is amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing golf course. Uh, so you know, I, I recommend to everyone, if they get a chance to go play in Scotland and England, uh, to, to do it because it is, uh, is different golf. It definitely, you have to play a little bit differently. Uh, but, it's an amazing experience, and I think everyone that loves golf should do at least once in their life. I also know uh, last year you had uh, some skin cancer, a little bit of a scare with some melanomas, and I know it's important to you to kind of uh, let people know, hey, you know, golf, we're all golfers. We spend a lot of time out in the sun. Uh, kind of talk to us about the importance of seeing your dermatologist, wearing sunscreen, all that stuff, you know, and I know you're doing fine with it now from what I understand, but still a scary thing. And, you know, it probably something we don't think about as much as we probably should. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we all think we're bulletproof and, uh, you know, I certainly did. I've never had any kind of surgery or real health problems in my life. And I went to, we had a, a screening, our, the tour, the European tour has screenings once a year for us and had our European senior PGA at the London club and we had a skin cancer screening and the lady said, you know, you've got this spot on your neck. You should probably have that looked at when you get home. So when I came home, I went to my dermatologist and she, uh, checked it. I had one on my leg too that I'd, I'd had checked a few times, but my wife was very adamant that they, that they check it too. And turns out both of them were melanoma and they were, you know, it was just, I was a swimmer when I was a young kid. I was played golf my whole life from the time I was eight years old been in the sun and obviously we didn't wear sunscreen back in those days and so they were both uh categories fortunately they were level zero melanoma but they both had to be i mean it was major surgery it was much more invasive than i thought uh, and so I, i'm a big advocate now of making sure people wear their sunscreen if you if you can wear the sun sleeves i started to wear the sun sleeves on my arms uh where you know uh, you're protected. I mean, just keep your skin protected because it can happen to anyone. And just be very good. If you see anything on your body that looks, you know, suspicious, go to your dermatologist. Don't wait. Uh, because if it hadn't been for that screening at the London Club, I probably would have waited, and it would have. It could have been a lot worse. Well, I got uh, a couple of quick hitters for you, and uh, we'll get you back if the weather's good enough down south there to get back on the practice range. But um, I'm going to throw a couple at you and just let me know what kind of to that comes to your mind here. So my first one is okay. best golf shot you ever hit under pressure. Best golf shot I ever hit under pressure. Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, probably... Maybe the last hole of the U.S. Open, even though I wasn't going to win anymore, um, I, had, I was playing with couples, and I had, like I say, there was crowds everywhere, and I had seven iron in the hole at 18 in Oakmont, and I hit it in there about six feet, and it was, I will remember to this day how absolutely pure it came off the, the club. Uh, and, you know, 
there were chills going up and down my spine walking up to the to the green because there were just so many people there. I was playing with, with Freddie Couples. And we had a huge gallery the whole day. But uh, that was probably the best shot I had under under any kind of pressure. I know you've known John Daly for a long, long time. Is there one great John Daly story that uh, that sticks out in your memory? Uh, <laughs> yeah, John and I went to Arkansas together, and we've been – friends for a long time actually his agent is bud martin too and and uh, one of the reasons why is because i introduced them uh yeah i don't think there's anything i can tell to, to a family audience <laughs> john i tell you what john is one of the most generous nicest guys you'd ever want to meet he really he would if you had a hundred dollars left to his name and you needed it, he'd give it to you. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know that about John. He's got the reputation as being a wild bad boy and all, but uh, he's got a great heart. Uh, and, you know, he's he done some things wrong in, in his personal life, but uh, he really is he really is a good person. You're not the first person to say that on this podcast. All the guys really seem to like him a lot. Like he's, they say he's just yeah. a good soul. He's just a good human being. He truly is. So he heard, is, heard sure. that multiples, uh, multiple times from uh, other professionals who, you know, compete against him and uh, are friends with him. They say he's just a great guy. Uh, next one I got, you may have answered one of these already, but the Augusta question, but two or three of the best golf courses you've ever gotten to play, um, you know, architecturally, they don't have to be tour courses, but is, is there, you know, one or two or three that stands out where that experience was just absolutely amazing to get out there and play? Well, one that really stands out to me, uh, which I played a European tour event a couple of times, and it's called the Heineken in Australia, is uh, the composite course at Royal Melbourne. I feel very fortunate to be able to have played there. Uh, of course, everybody just saw it yeah, in the President's that looks, Cup. Looks but incredible. It is incredible. It is amazing. It's it's my favorite course I've ever played in the world. It really is. What is it and about we're it? playing this week, uh, uh, well, it, you know, it's not long, so... It's 67, 6,800 yards. I don't know if they've lengthened it at this point, but it is strategic. I mean, you can't, even though the fairways are fairly wide, if you hit it in the right side of the fairway, that's probably, that may be the wrong place to hit it. You can't maybe even hit the green from there. So you have to know, okay, on this hole, I've got to hit it on the left side of the fairway. On this hole, I've got to be on the right side of the fairway. Coming into this green, I have to be short. Or I, I mean, it's, it's very strategic. There's nothing, there's, it's, you can't just bomb away. It, you absolutely have to know how to play the course. The green complexes looked amazing as well on TV. I mean, it just looks like that's my style. Like, the bunkering. I, I, oh, it looked incredible. The bunkering, the green complexes. Yeah, they're all just, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. Didn't mean to interrupt you there. I know you were talking about another one you played too that's, that you were just about to get to on the top of the list. No, well, where they're playing this week at Pebble Beach, you know, obviously everybody looks at Pebble Beach as a bucket list thing, and it is, and it's it's beautiful and everything, but the golf course itself is, you know, if you break it down and you just break down the golf course, the golf course is, is architecturally, I think, one of the best I've ever played. Have you played Cypress when you're out there? I have played Cypress, yeah. Cypress is, is the same thing. It's beautiful. Uh, the guy that I used to used to be my partner at the 18th Cape Pebble Beach is a is a member there. And actually, my first year on tour, 1990, it was still in the rotation for the tournament, so I was able to play it. Then, you know, Cypress is great, but it's got a couple of weak holes that keep it from probably being top ten. I mean, it's probably at the bottom end of my top ten. It's still fantastic, but it's got a couple of you know holes that I, you know that keep it from being number one. Any other of them that uh, stand out in your mind? Is there another one? Uh, well, Oakmont. I mean, you know, we yeah. go back to, to, to the U.S. Open. I mean, Oakmont is, uh, I would say probably Oakmont is my number two course that I've ever played behind Royal Melbourne. It, it you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's similar to Royal Melbourne in that, you know, it's, it's a very strategic golf course with the greens. The green complexes are so difficult that you can't just, you know, it's not a bombs away golf course, even though. Uh, some bombers have won there. Uh, it, ha- it helps to hit it far, but you have to also play it smart. Last one I got here for you. Um, you played a lot of golf for a lot of years on a lot of major tours. So the most raw, talented player you ever got to play with that you were just blown away by their God-given talent. 
And who's one of the guys who might have been one of the most underrated players where, like, the, the guys in that fraternity that you guys are in know, gosh, that guy is so good and so consistent, but the general public might not realize how great that player, you know, truly is? Yeah, well, you know, I think probably – well, we talked about we talked about John Daly already. John Daly probably the most uh, has the most raw talent of anybody I've ever seen. Uh, he, you know, everybody knows he hits it far, but he has incredible hands and an incredible short game. Uh, and you know, if he had had a little different uh, outlook on his, you know, partying, you know, some of this stuff, I think he could have won so many more majors. Because he had the raw talent to do it. Robert be another guy. When I, wow, this kid is amazing. I mean, he had, he he struck the ball so well. Um, uh, you know, he, he did definitely didn't have a career that I thought he was going to have. Although he had a you know he had a solid PGA Tour career. And the one guy I think that probably most people don't know about back from my generation that was so good uh, was Scott Hope. Scott Hope, you know, his ball striking, very kind of an unconventional swing, not a beautiful swing, uh, but probably the most consistent ball striker I've ever played with. Yeah, he just, he was just good for like 25 years, basically. He was just good. He was just, I mean, he was just, he was just an ATM. He just made money. That's all he did. Yeah, it's interesting. I had uh, uh, Tom Prince Jr. on after they won that team champions event down in uh, Missouri last year to talk to Tom about the win. And I said, uh, Scott Hoke still have it? And he goes, oh, yeah. When the back nine pressure came on, Scott Hoke turned into Scott Hoke, and he just started flagging irons. And he said, you know, that you just don't lose that gear. He said the more the pressure yeah. got on, the, the the better he played. And he was just rock solid still, you know, in his 60s. Tom's like, it was amazing. Yeah. He just turned the switch on, and here comes Scott Hoke. He said he's still yeah no he he he's definitely he's a he's a ball striker deluxe for sure yeah he he said he's uh he's you know he when he needed it it was still in there so yeah God he was a good player a great player for what do you have ten or twelve long wins, something like that yeah yeah he did it you know look at their extended period he he played I mean he was great in his forties still so yeah, yeah good call on that one well thank you so much for your time today I've really enjoyed the conversation you know best of luck on the Champions Tour events you're going to be playing in and over in Europe on the stage shore um, yeah we look forward to seeing you know the results this year and, and keep up the great play thanks very much Jason I appreciate it